Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I am pleased to introduce today's special guests. We are fortunate to have with us four of Canada's philanthropic leaders. They will guide us through the new world order of philanthropy 3.0. Through their considerable experience, they will provide examples of innovative forms of collaboration and what success looks like in this new world order. Moderating the discussion is Mr. Rudyard Griffiths, a social entrepreneur, author, and television broadcaster. Rudyard guest hosts the Lang and O'Leary Exchange on CBC News Network and is the former co-host of Business News Network's Squeeze Play. He's the president of the Peter and Melanie Monk Foundation and directs the semi-annual Monk Debates. He also runs his own social enterprise business and is the author of Who We Are, a Citizen's Manifesto. Joining Mr. Griffiths are three outstanding philanthropic leaders. Sherry Austin is Royal Bank's Vice President of Corporate Citizenship and the Executive Director of the RBC Foundation, a role she has held for the past six years. She's responsible for the leadership on an enterprise-wide basis of RBC's corporate social responsibility, environmental sustainability, and philanthropy initiatives. Andrea cohen Barrick is the CEO of the Ontario Trillium Foundation, one of the largest grant makers in Canada. Ms. cohen Barrick joined the foundation in July 2012, following a long and successful career in community health care, most recently as CEO of Unison Health and Community Services. She's recognized for her expertise in making organizations more effective by ensuring that systems are integrated and impact is both measured and assessed. Susan McIsaac became president and CEO of United Way Toronto in September 2010. She's a widely recognized leader with more than 25 years experience in the not-for-profit sector. A senior executive with United Way since 1998, Susan is a key architect of the organization's transformation from trusted fundraiser to community mobilizer and catalyst for impact. Before I relinquish the podium, I want to invite our live audience uh, to, to join the conversation by filling out the Q&A cards at each of your tables. One of our volunteers will come around to collect them during the discussion. Now, without further delay, please join me in welcoming Mr. Griffiths and our expert panelists to the Canadian Club of Toronto, Canada's podium of record. Look, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. This is a fabulous uh, crowd here today, and I think it's an expression of just how important uh, this issue is, and it's one that we're all grappling with. Um, today has been billed as uh, a discussion about charity and philanthropy 3.0, and maybe uh, I'll just take a moment to, to reflect on what you know one point, point one was and point two, and how we're getting to something called 3.0. I think 1.0 was the charity that uh, was created in, in the 19th century, in the early part of the 20th century, where causes, you know, poverty, homelessness, hunger, were dealt with on the basis of people providing donations, money, through church groups, through faith groups, uh, through associations, to try to address those needs uh, in the moment. Uh, it was a charity of, of really a, of communities, a charity of individuals coming together to meet social needs. 
I think many of us in this room would agree that, that philanthropy 2.0 uh, began in earnest in, in the last half century. It's really when government got involved. And when government said that there are certain rights in our society, rights to, to uh, a house, to, to food, uh, to safety, uh, and that these rights needed to be guaranteed by government on behalf of its citizens. And we've spent the last, I think, half century in this country in very interesting ways exploring how government can do that better, and especially increasingly how government does this in partnership with NGOs, with charities, with what we call uh, the voluntary sector. And this brings us to our topic today, a fascinating one, which is philanthropy 3.0. Uh, something new is emerging. I think all of us in this room acknowledge this, that there is uh, new dynamics at play. People are turning to the marketplace to look at how market mechanisms, how the profit motive can help deliver charitable outcomes. People are focusing more and more on networks, on ideas of long-term sustainability, on addressing root causes, and doing this in ways that, yes, still relies, as Charity 1.0 did, on individuals and their generosity, and still relying, as you know, Philanthropy 2.0 did, on a role and involvement for government. But I think what we want to get into today and what this panel can share with us is what's new about this, this third wave of uh, philanthropic innovation? What are its hallmarks? What are its characteristics? And also, frankly, you know, what are its problems? And what are the challenges that it faces to innovate, uh, to address social needs and challenges that go beyond simply the capacities of com communities on their own uh, or the capacities of, uh, of government? Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to fire off some questions for our panel. We're going to have an interactive discussion. You've got your question cards. Uh, those are going to come up to me. I'm going to weave them into the conversation also. And uh, luckily, we've got uh, a, a generous amount of time to talk about this. So Sherry, I, I want to come to you first, uh, because you know, you're in a special place at RBC, seeing, in a sense, the breadth and the scope of, of projects and programs across Canada. You know, is, is this Charity 3.0 actually happening? Is there? You, do you sense some new kind of wave of innovation, maybe a new model emerging? Or are we still at, let's maybe be honest with ourselves, are we still at the kind of buzzword stage where people are latching on to these ideas of sustainability, of networks, uh, but we're not really delivering that yet in, in partnership? Well, I think there is actually um, something very real going on, maybe a couple of very real things going on, one being the focus on impact and the desire to, um, number one, collaborate for impact and have different partners in those collaborations that maybe traditionally we would have looked to. So collaboration amongst funders, but also collaboration with um, the end recipients of whatever we're, we're doing. Um, so. Uh, impact is one thing. Um, another thing is the rise, and you referred to this, the rise of social enterprise, which I believe is a really um, exciting new area and something that will only grow over time. Uh, something that RBC has uh, put some real live money into. Uh, so we created a fund called the RBC Generator, which is a $10 million fund, and it's for for-profit um, organizations and enterprises with an environmental or social mission. Um, so that 
personally is very exciting to have a for-profit enterprise within my group, which is essentially a cost center for RBC. Um, but uh, but um, I also think that the organization of companies around causes rather than one-off charity um, sort of gifts is a huge, relatively new, say in the last decade, thrust. Hmm. Okay, well let's pick up on uh, this question of impact, because that's really what you're tasked with grappling uh, with at uh, the Ontario Trillium Foundation. I mean, to what degree are you seeing these new models having impact, and is that impact really transformative? Or, you know, Charity 1.0 did a lot of good. Charity 2.0 did a lot of good also. There was a lot of real impact there before we started to think about, wow, how does my charity have to become a for-profit business? How do I have to start, you know, making money to, to deliver on social outcomes? That's, that's a challenge in itself. It is a challenge, and um, I love the question actually on impact and, and where we were and where we are today, because I don't think that anyone in this room thinks that we didn't have impact in philanthropy one or philanthropy two. We absolutely did, but we weren't really rigorous in asking the question of what is the intended impact and can we know if we get there? And I think the difference in philanthropy 3.0 is we're being a lot more purposeful and proactive and strategic about saying, where do we expect to get to in 10 years with the investments that we're making? How do we measure how we're going to solve some of the complex social problems that philanthropy seeks to do? And how do we engage others with us in order to try to get there? And I think the, the shift is not to impact that people want to have impact, they always have, and they often have. But we have a sort of inside joke at Trillium that the real shift that we're looking at is that we're going to do impact on purpose rather than impact accidentally. Okay, so unpackage that a little bit for me, because <laughs> it's, uh, it's an interesting dichotomy that I'm not fully understanding. So for us as a funder, and I think many people in this room are familiar, we, we fund across four different sectors uh, across the province in a number of different kinds of not-for-profit organizations and charities. So in any granting round, we may fund an after-school program in a high-needs neighborhood, a bird sanctuary in northern Ontario, an apple cider festival in, in rural Ontario, and a, and a basketball club. And so what we were struck with is to say each of those things matters. Each of those in their own right has an impact, and the people who are working in them feel they have an impact. But for us as an organization to be able to demonstrate to the people of Ontario who fund us, are communities healthier, or do people have a better quality of life because of those impacts, that we couldn't do. What, how does that particular collection of grants lead to the bigger picture, and what is that bigger picture? And that's why we're starting to look at things like the Canadian Index of Well-Being, to say, you know, there's a rigorous thing that we can use to say, we're going to be able to measure our impact as a funder to direct our investments that we're making into those indicators in the Canadian Index of Well-Being that we believe will lead to healthy and vibrant communities in the province. Now, to turn to you, Susan, you know, the United Way is really at the kind of coal face of many of the deep and at times and seemingly intractable problems facing this city. I mean, to what degree do you see on the ground these new models emerging? Um, are, they, are they effective? Or is there a danger that the, that the sector itself you know, spends time now trying to think about some big reinvention to 3.0 and, and a lot of labor, energy, 
goes down that route as opposed to actually addressing these, these coalface uh, issues and challenges? Well, it's, it's the, the challenge for me when I think about impact, and, and I'm going to answer your question, but I, I think about those intractable problems and fixing them, which doesn't happen in a year or three years or five years. These are decade-long problems. They've been decades in the making, and they will be decades in the fixing. Um, so as we think about new and innovative ways to approach them, we think actually that's part of the mix. There's all kinds of different things that we need to do to to create the solutions that we're all looking for. It's not going to be one organization. United Way will work in partnership with many others. Um, and, and actually, I, I would describe part of philanthropy 3.0 as being just that, working in partnership with RBC to address the issue of youth at risk, working in partnership with KPMG to understand precarious employment and what kinds of solutions there might be, and finding unusual partners to get there. I think. Uh, there will be different approaches to philanthropy, different approaches to revenue production, and whether that's social enterprise or social impact bonds or any of those things, we are really open to trying them. We're open to trying them in partnership. But the biggest challenge that we experience as it relates to impact is that um, people's interests shift. We have problems that may take a decade or two decades to fix, but by the time you know, uh, a philanthropist is sometimes on year two, they're wanting to know, have you fixed it yet? Because now I'm interested in something else. And so uh, you know, we, a quick example, uh, we really started about a decade ago saying we're going to build strong, vibrant neighborhoods in the city of Toronto. That's long-term work. We've just completed a strategic planning process. One of our top three priorities is building vibrant neighborhoods. And I'm sure some of our donors are thinking, really? It's been a decade. Haven't you fixed the city yet? Uh, we're working on it. But I think these long-term problems uh, require very uh, lots of collaboration, lots of different partnerships, and bringing people to the table who don't bring the same perspective that we've always brought with tools that are different than some of the traditional ones we've always used. Well, let's talk a little bit about the partner that's traditionally been the biggest, which is, which is government. Um, Sherry, is there any danger here that, you know, if we start saying to charities, you know what, you need to be networking more, more collaborative, potentially generating your own revenues, that government gets off the hook. And government can say, okay, great sector, you've got your 3.0 strategy, we'll support you with conferences and research and insights, but, you know, the dollars aren't necessarily going to flow. That's something we have thought about quite a lot over the last few years, um, but I would say the bus has left the station on that one. Um, basically, the problems that we're facing today are too large, too complex, too costly for any sector to fix on its own, including government. So we need to, and again, back to collaboration. Government's got to be at the table. Government's got to continue funding, preferably ramp it up, but continue funding at least perhaps maybe focus on um, core funding for charities and let other types of donors who have their own passions uh, do more of the project funding. Um, but certainly, governments need to A, continue funding, B, make sure that any barriers, regulatory barriers, are taken down to the rest of us getting together in collaborations and moving forward. Hmm. Andrew, what's your take on, on government? I mean, you're not part of government, but a lot <laughs> of I'm know. sure what government would like to do, they come to you and say, why don't you do it? 
Yeah, we're obviously a, a partner of government and really thankful, actually, for the government to give us our budget that enables us to, in fact, do granting out to the not-for-profit sector in the province. And one of the things that we hear from our applicants and grantees when we survey them, and we just did that a, in the last year, is that sustainability is their number one concern. Because in these times of austerity and economic hardship, government doesn't have a lot more money to give. Uh, corporations don't often have a lot more money to give. Individual philanthropists have everyone knocking at their door with a cause that is meaningful and that matters. And a lot of the work that we do isn't about you know, saying, oh, we're gonna fund the good things, but not fund the bad things. It tends to be this good versus good. And so how do we as funders then help organizations to be sustainable in that environment? And I think the key for me, which, is, which has been really interesting for 3.0 and one of the big drivers, has actually been the austerity agenda and the fact that when budgets are tight, people are willing to think differently. And they're more creative. And they can find new ways of thinking about a problem that didn't exist before. They can collaborate differently. I don't think funders have talked you know, in the past in the same way that they're doing now and coming together to co-fund projects to build shared goals, figure out how we can collectively measure towards an impact and, uh, and be able to, to look at that together. So for the sustainability piece and how government can, I, I have to be honest, I, I think the days of core funding are over. Mm -hmm. I think what government can do is to, is to figure out how do we help uh, not-for-profits and charities look at social enterprise to increase their earned revenue. How do we maybe make loans available so that they can uh, really be able to you know, start something that matters? And, and that's going to be the new reality. And, it, and it's tough, and we're in transition. But I, I do believe that's probably the future. I'm going to go to questions in a moment. But Susan, I want to ask you about you know, this new 3.0 model. Is there a danger here that, that those communities, uh, kind of, I guess, a social justice question, those communities that don't necessarily have the capacity internally to network, to develop robust partnerships, to report back with tons of data and quantitative insights into what they're doing, that those communities themselves may have a challenge in adjusting to this new era. There, there's no question in my mind but that that will be the case. And I think there's, there's, a, there's huge value to be had in some of those small organizations that are in the ground in local communities because they have access points that nobody else would have. They will bring people in the door that another, other organizations simply couldn't. Part of what I think is, and, I, and I'm really hoping Andrea's wrong that core funding is dead, because those agencies <laughs> actually need it. And, I, and there's huge value to be had in, in creating some bandwidth for organizations, giving them capacity to do the work that they do. What, uh, I, I actually think when, when government funds only by project, they are, they're, they're strapping in organizations and making it impossible for them to do the very innovation that we need uh, in the community. So I'm, I'm hoping that there's still, and, and lobbying in fact, for there to be uh, core funding, because I think that is the bandwidth that we give agencies, help build the capacity that they need to innovate and do things differently. And I think, I've, I've had lots and lots of conversations over the last two years, we've been out on consultation at United Way, talking to agencies across the city, and what we've heard is that there is unbelievable appetite, willingness, and smarts around doing things differently and trying new things. They, they get that we're all changing and evolving. They get that the world has shifted. And they're right there with lots of great ideas. I think 
you know, we're, we talk about new approaches to organizing ourselves, we talk about new platforms on which we can um, share ideas and work together differently. All of those things are good, but I don't think we want to eliminate small organizations that are in on the ground, out in the community, because they are access points for people that would otherwise not get the services that they truly need. So I'm hopeful that as the pendulum swings one way, uh, we'll see there be a bit of a balance where we continue to embrace and support those organizations as well. Well, that's a perfect segue to our, our first audience question, and I want to put it to you, Sherry, and, and it's in a simple form, you know, does philanthropy 3.0 mean that we'll see a rationalization of charities and not-for-profits? And in effect, are there too many out there right now? Uh, is this a sector that, I don't know, in a variety of ways needs to optimize for uh, this new environment? Um, I think it does. So just to give you an idea of the scale of what we deal with, um, we get about 37,000 requests a year. Uh, and there, that's about 42% of the number of charities that there are in Canada. Um, so huge numbers of organizations and huge numbers with needs, but on the other hand, we do still see a lot of charities coming in who um, have very similar mandates and philosophies to other charities and are not working with them, are not sometimes even aware of the other organizations. So we see as one of our... Um, of our motivators and drivers, the desire to um, make sure that there is uh, not duplication. Uh, tell Sometimes we tell charities, please go talk to each other, and we would be open to a joint submission. Um, and that, I think, is, they may not see it as helpful all the time, but uh, <laughs> I think in the broader sweep, it is helpful. Yeah. Andrew, on that same question, I mean, you get a lot of proposals coming into you. Um, you know, is this a, a sector that needs to go through some rationalization to be more effective? So maybe, uh, but, I, but I think as Susan has indicated, there are a lot of very small volunteer-run uh, organizations that we fund that, first of all, can do amazing things with almost no money. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're very lean organizations. Often the best ideas for how to solve some of these complex social problems come from people who haven't been involved in philanthropy before, who are just engaged with their communities and they see a problem that they want to fix, and they connect with others to be able to do that. And I would hate to see us be in a place where we wouldn't want to fund that. What I worry about, though, is that we have a system where the next, if someone has a great idea for how to solve a problem in, in their community, the next step is they think, okay, now I got to incorporate and get my charitable status. And, do, and that should not be the next step for people who want to work on the ground to help solve a problem. And we do a lot of funding into things like shared platforms and back office that, that allow organizations to be somewhat independent and carry out the work that they're going to do, but still have the back office support that they need to do. And I think with the core funding piece, one of the shifts I think is going to be not that there's none, but it switches from a, we're just going to give you an annualized core amount because we believe in whatever your cause is, to more of a purchase of service agreement, right, with very clear outcomes. And we've seen that come in healthcare, which is my particular background. You know, we now have accountability agreements where you say, you know, how many patients are you going to serve and how many of them are going to get a pap test and, and what's that going to look like? I think that's coming to the not-for-profit sector as well. So it's not just about, it's not that core budgets disappear, it's just that they're now tied 
to results. And we need to get better as a sector in figuring out how to capture results in a way that matters as opposed to capturing a bunch of data that doesn't matter. And I think that's the biggest frustration that we hear from, the, from our applicants and grantees is, no, please, your application was bad enough. Don't now make me do all of this reporting for you that we're pretty sure you don't look at anyway. But so there's a number of questions here touching on this whole idea of, again, capacity. Can the sector, as it exists now, respond to these, these new demands when they themselves are just struggling to either meet or anticipate the actual service that they're trying to deliver? And to what degree do we start displacing what the charity or the not-for-profit is really there to do with a whole bunch of kind of metrics and you know investigation and reporting uh, that pushes that work aside. Yeah, I, I, th I think uh, it's going to be very, very hard for, for many, many agencies to deliver against some of the evaluation expectations that we might have. And certainly that was a large part of our rethinking the way we work at United Way. It was very much how do we make this doable for organizations? How do we, if we do want to be able to aggregate up the impact that we're having across a whole group of agencies, then how do we make that a manageable task? And how do we support, how do we help build the capacity to do that? What kinds of tools are we going to create to enable that kind of work? I think, frankly, uh, a lot of the agencies out there, they are stretched beyond what their own capabilities are. They're doing just remarkable work. Um, but there is no bandwidth. And so I think there's a variety of things we can do. I actually think we, the funders, have to create those opportunities and tools and resources for them to deliver against our expectations. Mm -hmm. I think also, um, increasingly, and I'm hearing this from colleagues across the not-for-profit sector, if donors want to start new initiatives or, or launch big sort of vanity projects or, or other, then great. But we're, we're going to take a portion of that to create that very capacity within the organization that you're going to need in order for us to provide you with the stewardship that you want. And I think if we're not going to provide that, that counter support, then we can't create that expectation. And I also think there's, there's a real variability in terms of what people expect in terms of impact. Like I, I, I really believe that donors are not a, a homogenous group. So, you know, there's a lot, lots of enthusiasm right now about going abroad and building schools. And for some people, seeing the schoolhouse is impact. Did it. Got it. Whether or not they're students, not so important. But we got the schoolhouse. <laughs> got my impact. And then there's those that say, I actually want to know that after three years, students are still going to school. There's actually paid teachers. And for them, that's impact. For others, I want to know when the first graduation happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and then others still, when the first teacher is in that school that graduated from that school, well, that's real impact because now the community has, um, and that's the scope of what we're looking for, I think, in a very simplistic way. Uh, and I think we have to understand what it is donors are really looking for uh, and, and ensure that we're not making it so complicated and difficult for agencies to deliver against that. Because you know what? There is no organization in this city that's going to fix youth crime. There's no organization that's going to eliminate poverty. Collectively, we can do all kinds of smart things to improve the, and make the city more vibrant. But, but boy, oh boy, we cannot expect that we're going to be able to deliver any kind of clear impact measurements against any of those problems in the short term. Yeah, please. 
Um, so in the short term, and, and I completely hear the um, concern from charities uh, uh, that you were referring to, Susan, about uh, this being overburdensome for them, trying to understand impact and the demands of funders in that respect. Um, there is nothing to stop, and I think we would welcome um, charities building into their donations applications a component that speaks to the assessment piece. Um, and whether it's a third party uh, consultant that might do that or developing the capacity in house. And it doesn't have to be um, impact of the entire organization, it can be impact of that particular project that we happen to be funding. Um, but in the longer term, um, I do, and I, this is my, I have a dream speech. Um, <laughs> I have a dream that um, there would be ultimately some sort of standardization in terms of the impacts that donors are looking for. And I don't think the impacts are infinite. I think there is a potential for us to agree that in each space, whether it's poverty um, or education or whatnot, there are really the top four or five impacts that everybody's pretty much looking for. And that uh, people can start to, to coalesce around and we can start to have public publicly available information um, so that donors can assess and compare different charities and their impacts. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, I spent 10 years running a charity. I'm now working at a foundation, but I know what it's like to sit on the other side of the table. And I want to talk a little bit about the power relationship. Um, is that changing? Uh, you know, I think there was a long period here where people would have great ideas come forward and then the funder would make the decision as to whether that idea went forward. We're now in an era of crowdsourcing, of all kinds of different uh, technologies and frankly community movements that are coming together. Do you see in your, in, at Trillium or just in the sector, a, a shift in the, in, the, in the power balance? I do and I think it depends on what what kind of funder it is, to be honest. Uh, one of the things, we are a very public funder. We're an agency of government. So we have a level of scrutiny on our practice and our transparency and the defensible uh, you know, argument we make for why we granted one thing and not another thing. And so we've actually worked hard to take more of a customer service approach to our work and look at it as a partnership to say, we may have a lot of money and you know and we take that long view to say you know in the next decade we're going to invest a billion dollars into this province you know we alone with that money can do nothing if we don't have folks to deliver on the results and so when we talk about impact and Sherry mentioned you know wouldn't it be great if we had organizations to come together and agree on shared goals and part of our interest in fact in the Canadian index of well-being which we commissioned an Ontario report of which will be released on Tuesday is to say if we're able to as funders and pick those common indicators whether they be around community vitality whether they be around education or the environment and say we're going to collectively pick those that we want to measure against, we might actually be able to see that. And the beauty of it is we can also involve our applicants and grantees so that we can, in partnership with them, to say, here's our shared goal. We want to make sure, for instance, that we increase the percentage of 20 to 24-year-olds who graduate from high school, right? So that's our goal as a funder, and many of our grantees have similar goals in their work, so how do we then work together measure it together. When we, you know, Sherry and, and Susan and I get together, if we compare lists of the folks that we fund, we have a shared list 
I mean, applicants and grantees, when I ran the, the health organization I ran, we had 20 different funders, and they had 20 different reporting mechanisms, and it was very much a power dynamic where, well, if you want the money, you just sort of have to do that. You know, investment doesn't matter if you don't have a delivery agent. So there is that, you know, needing to um, recognize that. Now, having said that, we still have the money. Right, and so um, I, I had—I uh, I was trying to give this great sort of speech about, you know, no, it's a partnership. We invest, and you deliver, and, and we are both needed in the relationship. And they said, but you know, when I come into your offices and you're sitting across from me, I'm sweating because I, I just really want the money. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think we can ignore the reality of that, but I do think we can, you know, sort of shift the conversation. Susan, talk about the power relationship. Uh, you know, are there ways that we could be more progressive about this? You know, I mean, should we, should we be thinking about, is there a new model to think about how one project gets green-lighted and another gets red-lighted uh, that is somehow maybe more democratic, more community-based, more responsive to the actual needs of the, that particular group on the ground at that moment? I, I agree with Andrea and everything except that we all share the same uh, groups that we fund. We never fund apple cider groups. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, no, I agree with Andrea that the, that the power balance is still, um, there is still, a, there's no getting around the fact that organizations that are trying to secure funding, there's an imbalance. But I do think there are lots of different ways that we're working together that does create a little more um, democracy in the process. And part of that is that um, sometimes we're the funder, sometimes we're the partner, sometimes we're just a contributor, we're, we're doing a, the, the research, sometimes uh, we're the supplicant. And so uh, we, we shift the roles that we have. And I think as we work differently in, in the community, we start to see that changing a bit. So if I think about different kinds of partnerships, a, a quick example, uh, after the year of the gun, the, the province wanted to invest in the 13 priority neighborhoods to try to get at the root of youth violence. And some of the Youth Challenge Fund leaders uh, were of initiatives that were funded are here today, and I'm thrilled about that. That partnership that came out of that was government, it was United Way, it was youth groups, it was the, the, the Toronto School Board, the Toronto Separate School Board, and a whole number of community agencies across the city that were acted as trustees and partners. It became a very different kind of dynamic. Yes, there was a pool of funding that came originally from the province, but we were all working together on something that was very new, very different, quite innovative, and frankly, very challenging, and had lots of elements of risk. So it was, it was, uh, it was big, it was a different approach to philanthropy, it was a different approach to working in community, and I think it shifted the balance of power in that we were investing in youth leadership, we were investing in different kinds of uh, initiatives, and I think, did it change it wholly? No, but I think it did change the way we had the dialogue, and I think it, it is uh, the way of the future. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit now about you know, what success looks like. Um, and Sherry, I mean, without being specific as to you know, grantees, I mean, what, what type of proposal do you, would you see that you'd say, wow, this is really checking off the boxes uh, for us? What are the, what are the facets of a, a community idea that you know, strikes the right chord in terms of what you think is innovative in the space? Well, there are a couple things. One is um, we have 
pretty explicitly articulated what our areas of interest are. So, uh, and they are water, kids and youth, and various facets, and emerging artist programs, um, as well as diversity-related gifts. So, you know, without it being a tick box, if you can hit one of those, great. If you can hit two, three, or four of those in a, in a gift, that's, that's amazing. Um, so, one is alignment to our cause. Uh, another is, is this a new idea? Is this, and is it bringing together a bunch of parties that are pursuing their interest in a disparate way. I mean, that's something that does excite us, that um, people are coalescing around a new idea. Hmm. Um, one thing, one example I'll give you recently that we were involved in, and it, it's a little bit of a new um, protocol for us, uh, relates to a telepsychiatry program in the north that we just announced with Cisco a couple of uh, weeks ago. And that's different because we don't typically get together with other corporations and do joint collaborations. But we had an interest in children's mental health in the North. Cisco has a huge interest in education and other things in the North. Um, and we got together with people who have expertise, particularly those at Sick Kids Hospital, people on the ground, so in the North, um, hospitals and uh, governments. So it's really... Um, taking a problem, which is the fact that there are very few services for mental health in the North for youth, uh, and coalescing a group of maybe uncommon bedfellows, so to speak, around the issue. So that's the type of thing that we're starting to get excited about. Similar question for you, Susan, but from a Toronto perspective, I mean, what, what would jump out for you with a, a pro new project or an existing organization coming to you saying, you know, we want to do X, what, what is the aspect of that proposal that, you know, for you would kind of separate it from a lot of the rest of what you see? So, uh, like many funders, we've also really tried to drill down to some key priority areas where we're going to really uh, direct our primary resources, not exclusively, but primary resources. Um, and so the capacity of organizations to align to our, uh, our priorities, our values, uh, helps a lot. We, when we did our strategic plan, said we're going to actually create a pillar which is just about innovation, organizations that are working differently. And the board came back and said, no, don't create a pillar. Embed it in everything you do. Um, so those organizations that are really taking innovative approaches, that are trying to work differently, smarter, uh, work in more collaborative ways to try to address some of these wicked problems, those will have an advantage. Those organizations that are thinking a little bit differently, aligned with our priorities, uh, work well with us as a partner, those will be the ones that I think will have an advantage. Andrew, a similar question for you. What, what are those markers of success? Um, you know, I know you have specific guidelines, but also in, just in terms of what you see that's innovative. Yeah, and we've tried to look at innovation and success in a, a little bit of a different way um, because part of it's around the time frame that you want to see success in, right? And so there are some projects. So if we, you know, if we do a capital project, for instance, you know, the building is, but the schoolhouse is built, right? So success is achieved, really. Um, and, and so we are actually sort of shifting the way that we grant to say, we actually think innovation doesn't just happen with the idea and trying something new. It's useless if it's just that. If you don't grow the idea, if you don't expand it and replicate it elsewhere, if you don't involve others in taking more of a systemic approach, then the innovation actually isn't really able to realize its full potential. So with the combination of that idea of you know, how 
what is the time frame you want to see results under, and the idea that innovation actually has a life cycle, we've looked at, okay, how do we then have one granting stream that is about seed funding and it's higher risk and it's new ideas, and we're just going to put money into that and see if we can spark things that, that are going to work and, and solve some of the entrenched problems that we have in our communities. But in addition to that, we have a very uh, dedicated growth fund to say, how do we then take those good ideas and grow them and replicate them and see if they can, in fact, become sustainable so they can make a difference? And then the third piece of that is then, okay, how do we then incorporate others so we can really transform systems? Because if we continue to work in silos, we're not going to get there. So a good idea on its own isn't enough. The good ideas have to actually join together in more of a collective impact approach. And so, you know, dedicating funds to then say, we want to have a systems solution to these things. And some of the examples that both Susan and Sherry gave in terms of the partners coming together, it's no longer just enough to measure success by a single initiative. I mean, that's okay in an interim basis, but if you want to look out a decade and see what that investment's going to be, it has to be what's the collective success of all of our investment and all of the work of not-for-profits on the ground delivering on that investment. Great. Uh, I just want to be conscious of our time and, and give each of the panelists uh, just 30 seconds to kind of share a key thought, wrap up um, something that you heard here, or, or re-emphasize or reinforce a point that you made. Sherry? Um, I guess a couple of things that we didn't touch on, and really from a corporate perspective, uh, certainly social and environmental good in the community is hugely important to us. But also important uh, and can't be denied are things like the importance of employee engagement uh, and making sure that our employees own both the corporate causes and that we support employees in their own passions. Because when you have a, to some extent, top-down choice of causes, you really need another um, support mechanism for people. Um, and the other thing is, of course, brand and reputation and. Um, making sure that uh, what we do in the corporate citizenship space is aligned to uh, the brand strategy of our company and uh, the business strategy to some extent. Although that said, we don't use philanthropy for business development purposes. <laughs> You're here. Andrew? So I think one of the things that we haven't touched on as much is, is about sort of knowledge um, and how we use knowledge in the sector. Because like everything else in our world, you almost need a curator of all of the, the research and the data and the impact and, you know, that, that goes on in the sector. And so one of the things that we've looked at is how do we actually come together to share knowledge better? And so as one of our partnerships, actually, we've uh, been working with uh, Community Foundations of Canada and others to, to build what we're calling a community knowledge exchange. And we're having our first summit here in Toronto at, at TIFF, actually, November uh, 19th to 21st. And it's looking at four pillars of how can we use open data to actually benefit all of our causes? How do we better do um, research in terms of a strategic way? How can we tell our narrative and storytelling? And then my personal favorite is how can we bring funders together to look at that idea of collective impact through shared measurement and get funders to sign on to, in fact, those two or three goals. And, and so you can check it out at ckx.org. But we're very much interested in having the summit not just be a conference, but in terms of getting real agreements to move us forward on delivering on some of the possibilities that Philanthropy 3.0, I think, has to offer to, to all of us in our communities. Susan, last word uh, to you. 
Thank you. I, uh, I think the last thing I would say is that we don't, uh, we don't think in my organization that we have solutions to uh, the big problems. We think we work really well in community with lots of different uh, thought leaders and unsuspecting uh, individuals and organizations that bring great ideas to the discussion. And we really believe that there is much to be done in this city, that there is great potential in the city, and that it will be those ideas from across across the sector and across sectors that will help us uh, with big solutions. And so I think that's what 3.0 is for us. It's about bringing all of those great minds to the table to help us think through these big problems and, and uh, develop the solutions. Great. Well, all three of you have really helped uh, us think this through today. So ladies and gentlemen, please, an appreciation uh, for your panel. My name is Willa Black from Cisco, Canada, and I am also a proud director of the Canadian Club. Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I wish to thank Rudyard, Sherry, Andrea, and Susan for navigating us through the complex world of philanthropy as we know it today. As the great 19th century transcendentalist and hermit, Henry David Thoreau wrote in his reflective work on Walden Pond, quote, Philanthropy is almost the only virtue which is sufficiently appreciated by mankind. Now, I'm not here to quibble with Thoreau, fortunately for all of us, but I do feel that perhaps there are other worthy virtues to be considered. But I will agree with him in saying, and as we've clearly seen today, that the exercise of thoughtful and well-considered philanthropy, the third wave in Rudyard's term, can have powerful impact and be a stimulative, stimulative force in addressing the social issues we face in our time. The world has evolved since Thoreau emerged from his contemplative state at the edge of that pond, and now we see a discipline and a rigor around the exercise of philanthropy as a transformative force. As leaders of philanthropic organizations, we appreciated the way you demonstrated what philanthropy today means. New models are contemplating the complementing the tremendous initiatives at the grassroots level. It's a complex blend of advancement, partnership, social responsibility, investment, collaboration and cooperation, and capacity building within the sector. And Canadian volunteerism shows similar characteristics. Volunteer Canada reports that Canadian volunteers are more goal-oriented, autonomous, tech-savvy, mobile. 21st century philanthropy is evolving. It's exciting. Rudyard, thank you for your skillful facilitation of a rich and engaging discussion. Panelists, thank, thank you so much for all that you do to support the thousands of worthy causes across Canada. Good afternoon. Thank you very much, uh, Willa. I'd like to uh, echo Willa's message and uh, Rudyard Shari. Andrea and uh, Susan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Our sincere thanks once again to Cisco and RBC for making this event possible. And before adjourning, I'd like to remind everybody that uh, this helpful survey card, which was designed to fall into your laps when you picked up your napkin, is very important to us. We do appreciate your feedback, so I encourage you to fill those out um, before you leave. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We're grateful to Rogers TV for their continued promotion of Canadian Club events. To learn more about the club, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. Thank you for joining us. This meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>